our, our text this morning comes from two of the, the Gospels, the first two Gospels. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Keep a finger there, then turn over to Mark chapter 11. While you're turning to Matthew 21, I want to share what's, what's happening the next few weeks. Next Sunday, uh, I will be with Jacob Oberlin and Cassidy Boardman and Kendrick Foreman at a retreat, uh, hopefully uh, learning what we want to do in our fall retreat uh, here at, at Williamstown. So while I'm away, Jeremiah Kuhn will be speaking to you. He always does a fantastic job in sharing God's message with you. So he will be here uh, next Sunday. And then in May, we're going to have a three-week series that will be two of me and one Mark McCain uh, tag-teaming on a series on biblical leadership and more specifically biblical eldership. It's a series that I hope that uh, you remember what we talked about back in January about sitting in God's Word, sitting in His presence and just sort of marinating in the text. Uh, something that we believe is, is biblical, something that we want to share with our church family uh, in the month of May. And that's just the beginning uh, in the month of May. So we want, want to make sure you're here. We're going to ask our care groups during that three-week series to, to follow up what we do in Sunday morning uh, in their care groups. If you're not in a care group, uh, we want to make sure that you have in your hands a study that can take you through uh, the week uh, to, uh, to go deeper than what we go in a half hour or so uh, on a Sunday morning. But this morning, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 11. And remember on Easter uh, resurrection, we, we saw Simon Peter and Mary Magdalene and all the others who were affected and who got to encounter the risen Jesus. Uh, and then last week, we took a step back uh, to between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, and we looked at the, the, the temple encounter where Jesus cleared out the temple and what that whole thing from Genesis uh, to the Gospels meant uh, with Jesus eliminating the veil, the separation between God uh, and his people, that he, he tore the veil. He was the one who went under the sword, uh, who, took the, who paid the price for us to be back in the presence of God, and that we should revel in that, we should live in that, because we don't have to, we don't have to, to, to go through a priest because we have direct, direct access because our high priest shattered the veil. Uh, and we can go to Jesus or go to God anytime. Today, we're going to look at a, a, an account and probably took, they probably didn't even break stride as they were on their walk and when, this, when this happened. Just this simple object lesson that Jesus taught to his disciples that I hope has a big time impact on our walk as believers. So Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 11, again, we're going to read both of these accounts because Mark includes a couple of details that make this a little bit more meaningful, hopefully, for us. So Mark chapter 21, or Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 18. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he's going back to Jerusalem. Remember, he, he came in on the colt, uh, the, the triumphal entry. Uh, after that parade, he went and he, he, he looked at the temple. We looked in the temple. Uh, he took account of everything that was going on. But Scripture says because it was late, he went back to Bethany. So now he's going back into Jerusalem. And he, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may fruit never, may fruit, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will do not only, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, 
But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark's account over in Mark chapter 11 is actually in two sections um, because it talks about the cursing of the fig tree. And then we see Jesus in the temple. That's what we talked about last week. And then they go back and they discuss what happened uh, with that fig tree. So in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12, Mark writes, on the following day, uh, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And then he adds this, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they passed by it, and then, then we have the temple section, and down in verse 20, and they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There is a lot packed in these few verses. We could talk about a lot of different things. We could talk about when he, when he makes reference to the mountains, how that when Jesus typically speaks of mountains, it's because he's seeing mountains. And at this point, there's the Mount of Olives and there's the Temple Mount that, 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 that are in view. And we could talk about what he means when, and how he's being metaphorical when he talks about it's thrown into the, to the, to the seas and what's going to happen on these two mountains uh, in, the, in the, just the next few days. We could talk about what he's meaning when he's talking about prayer and ask anything and it will be given to you. It sounds a whole lot like God's sort of a vending machine. Take your prayer, put it in, push the button, and voila. But there's other scriptures that back up and emphasize what he's meaning there. We, we just can't pray for every need or every want that we might have, every desire, and expect God to give it. It has to be in line. We could talk about all of that, but this morning... We're going to focus on this encounter, this object lesson of Jesus seeing a fig tree and why he cursed it. But before we do that, let's go to our Father and pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be together as a faith family, to celebrate, to sing, and God, in a few minutes, to, to share in communion together. God, thank you for the freedom and the opportunity that you give us to worship through giving. God, may what we put in a plate uh, be used uh, by good stewards to further the mission of this local church, whether it's in these walls and in this city, across this nation, or across your globe. God, we pray that this morning that you open both our heads and our hearts uh, to, to take in the, the magnitude of the lesson in this simple story. God, may we be stronger in our faith for, for hearing your word this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, when you read Matthew 21 and then you add in Mark's account and that little statement, and it wasn't the season of figs, this really doesn't look like a great, great line for Jesus uh, to be throwing out there, that, that, he, that he curses this fig tree because it's not fig season. But we, it seems like a little bit mean uh, to us, and, but we need to lean in and look at what this is really about. We need to understand more in context what he is talking about. 
Um, because this isn't the pressures of Jerusalem and the cross and the crucifixion getting to Jesus. This isn't, uh, this is not a fit of misplaced anger. This is Jesus seizing the moment to teach his disciples privately as they're walking back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, an opportunity to teach them something privately that pretty soon he's going to, 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 to show that same lesson in front of everybody. You see, fig trees bear two kinds of fruit. And you can, you, there's a lot of interesting things about fig trees, right? Google is wonderful, right? Just go and read and read. And you can, uh, like, the, there's a conversation about uh, the, the figs aren't really a fruit. It's more of an inverted flower because of the way it grows. Go look at some pictures. Okay? There is something weird that happens with the wasp that helps in the pollination, uh, that he becomes a part of the fruit, actually, or the inverted flower. Right? Go check it out. Right? There's even a discussion, rather heated at times, about whether a true vegan can eat a fig because of what happens to the insect in the growth and pollination process. Go check it out. You can spend slash waste all kinds of time uh, learning stuff about figs. But for our purposes this morning, all we need to know is that a fig tree, just by word association alone, bears, produces, grows figs. And uh, this, it looks sort of like a small pear, small misshaped pear, different colors, different varieties. And for today, we need to know that at harvest time, when a fig tree orchard owner goes to his fig tree and reaches up and grabs a fruit, a flower, whatever you want to call it, he is picking a fig. But earlier in the spring, when the leaves start to come out, fig trees also produce a second type of fruit. It's this little nodule. Now, there's debate over whether it's yummy or whether it's just edible. But travelers would often, on their journey, see a fig tree and just walk by it and grab a couple of nodules off of the tree and pop them in their mouth as they're on their journey as a snack. It's trail mix. And they're just walking. So Jesus, as he's going back to Jerusalem, uh, he, he, he sees this tree, this fig tree in the distance, and he goes to it thinking, hey, I had to skip breakfast this morning. I'm going to grab a couple nodules off of this until lunchtime rolls around. But if you found a tree that had sprouted leaves but had none of these nodules on it, you knew that something was wrong. It might look okay in the distance, but as you got closer and there were no nodules there, it was a symbol that this tree was diseased or maybe even dying. So Jesus here is simply just pronouncing that truth, and he's using that truth to teach a lesson. He seizes the opportunity to provide a private, memorable object lesson, a parable on hollow religion. And the fig tree is his visual aid. So what's this lesson about? Well, Jesus finds this fig tree not doing its appointed job. It's not doing what it was created to do. And it becomes a perfect metaphor for Israel. And beyond that, to anybody claiming to be a child of God, but not bearing fruit for him. Jesus was returning to a place that was religiously very busy. Remember the scene that we described last week about what the temple was like. 
but just like a lot of churches and even a lot of Christian homes, there may be a lot of tasks, a lot of activity, a lot of boards and committees and ministries and people coming and going, a lot of transactions, but the busyness contains little to no spirituality. Nobody was actually praying in the temple because they had turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers, a cave of robbers. Jesus is saying that he wants more than just busyness, that he wants more than just the appearance of stuff happening. He wants the kind of character, that, the kind of character change that only comes when we realize, when we accept that we have been redeemed, that we have been ransomed. He wants, and this type of character change happens on a personal level, but it has kingdom implications. And that's what we want to talk about in the next few minutes. What happens on a personal level and then how that should be seen on a kingdom level. Personal spiritual maturity. Uh, sanctification. Growing in our faith. Maturing in our faith. Acclaiming, mature, uh, attaining maturity that Ephesians talks about. So, so that if, when the spirit comes upon you. When you become a believer, when the Spirit convicts you of sin and, 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 and makes you realize that you need to cry out to Jesus and he opens wide, open wide the door uh, for you to be in relationship with Jesus and you are now there and you are saved, you are in a right relationship, that Spirit doesn't just sort of drop you at God's doorstep and then take off back into the heavenly realm. No, he sticks with you. He lives in you, and he is there to continue to convict you of sin, to encourage you in your walk, to equip you for the calling for which you have been called. He stays with you. He dwells in you. And when the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are going to look different. Now, you can look at it as a good thing that he gives us some liberty or you look at it as a bad thing as our, our, our sinful nature is still there and, 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 and still tries to affect us. But there's times where we try to, 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 to divert the spirit, to ignore the spirit, to quench the spirit. But if we are a believer, we should look different. We should act different. So when we are talking about personal maturity as we are growing, if you are a gossip a naysayer, a divisive person, have you begun, as you, have, you, have you exited the life of death and darkness into life and light? Have you begun to desire integrity in your relationships with others? Or do you believe that God's purity standards don't apply to you? If you are a perpetually negative person, have you begun seeking a worldview that, 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 that more focuses on Jesus' promises rather than the world and culture's lies? Do you realize, as Paul reminds us, that whatever the world throws at us, whether physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, whatever the world throws at us is but a light, momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory, God's promises. If you're, if you're naturally a lazy or a slothful person, do those around you see even the slightest change in how you approach life because you realize that after all that God has done for you, that you are compelled to live a life of love and service to him and to others? Are you exchanging your apathy for a passion for what has been done in you? If you're a person that lives a life of dependency on a drink 
on a drug, uh, on an appetite? Is it clear that your reliance on that false answer is lessening and you are clinging more closely to the fullness of life that Christ promises and provides? Are the addictions of your life giving way to a reliance on God's truth? If you're an anxious person, if you're an impatient person, is it clear to anybody around you that you're overcoming that? Do you, do you have the power? Is that power growing in you to wait through Jesus' delays? If you're a person who has to be in control, have you begun to realize that, that surrendering to the king of eternity is a far better choice than you continuing to try to control your own life? Or do you fight against the goad of God and white-knuckle your way through life, holding on to anything and everything other than him? If you're someone who has suffered with greed, is it evident that you're trading, that rusting, fading, not all that it's promised, not all that, not all that valuable for that inheritance that we read about in 1 Peter, that, that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you? Are you clinging to fleeting riches that can be taken from you at any time or the unperishable promises of God? If you're a person who carries around this heavy yoke of shame and regret and guilt, is your life now showing that you've accepted a gentler and easier yoke given to you by your Messiah? Are you showing that you cling more tightly to the freedom that you have in Christ now than the shackles of your past. If you're an angry or unforgiving person, have you clearly begun to conquer anger? Are you learning to absorb the cost of forgiveness because you realize that someone absorbed the cost of forgiving you? That Jesus absorbed the cost for your forgiveness. If you're one who battles with control, battles to control your lustful desires, or do those that you've made yourself accountable to see a change in you feeding your appetites? Or is there a desire for you to have a, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Or do you desire to continue to lead and follow after those desires that lead you to dark, dangerous, and painful places? To put it in more recent terms, church, are we committed to deepening our relationship with Jesus? From the moment that he pulled us out of darkness into light, brought us from death to life, invited us to follow him, to follow and he would make us fishers of men, are we looking more like those disciples who make disciples who make disciples? Now, it's not Monday to Tuesday, bam, you're, everything in your life is completely different, but are you seeing progress? Are you seeing the results of Jesus sanctifying you through his spirit? Do those around you see that? Are you becoming more a, a more perfect image bearer of Jesus Christ every day that you're giving breath? That's on the personal level, things that we all wrestle with, uh, burdens that we all carry around, sins that, that seem to, 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 to target us more than they target those around us. But we all have the, these sins, these temptations that we have to deal with. Are we doing better at dealing with those than we were in our past? Are you seeing fruit from your salvation? Those on that personal level also affects the kingdom's expansion, what the church, local and global, is doing. 
1 Peter 2.9 that we read at the beginning reminds us that we are not a, a group of people who has a pastor who does everything for us. We don't have nine deacons who are, who are, who are charged and promoted to the, elevated to this spot that they speak and that they do everything as a representation of the church. No, we are a royal priesthood, every single one of us gifted by God to do what he has called and equipped us to do. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So church this morning, are you bearing fruit? Not just on a personal level, but are there people in your world today who not too long ago were lost, who did not know Jesus, but now know him? because you introduced him to a Messiah. Yes, I know. Yes, I preach. Yes, I believe that we have no power to save, no power to convict. But are you in your obedience introducing people to Jesus Christ? Are there people today who know the Lord because you made an introduction? Are you making plans intentionally based on what Jesus has done for you and what he has called you to do? Are you saying yes to things that matter for eternity? Are you getting better and better at saying no to things that have no kingdom connection whatsoever? Are you stewarding the God-given blessings that have so luxuriously, lovingly, and graciously been given to you? Are you using talents and time and money and resources and energy and family and job and car and whatever pulpit that you have been given in this life? Are you using that to make much of the one who died for you for kingdom purposes? Or are we so wrapped up in our own lives? Do we continue to look no different than the dead Tony after he's brought us to life? Are we so wrapped up in our own life that we're robbing God? And literally living as if he did not die for us. If Jesus truly is our Lord and Savior, then every single day that he blesses us with breath, we should look more like his son, more committed to his mission. Church, we cannot push God to the sidelines. We cannot just put him on the periphery of our life. We have to stop doing that. He needs to become the focus, the sole focus of our life. Give yourself to him, center your life on him, and let his power reproduce his character in you. The whole point of the fig tree is incident was for Jesus to say, if you are a fig tree, if you are a living fig tree, you'd better be bearing figs. When Jesus judges the fig tree, he foretells judgment not on all Israel, not on all believers, but on those who, just like that fig tree that Jesus saw off in the distance, looks like it ought to be good for something, but on closer inspection is just fruitless and barren, alive but empty. If you are a believer, if you still have breath in your lungs, if you're a living believer, you'd better be bearing fruit. Jesus contrasts here the fruitless fig tree and the fruitless temple with sincere trust and worship in God and his redeeming work. And it's only through that redeeming work that we can do what he has called us to do, to love him with every ounce of our being, 
to worship him through any avenue possible, through singing, through study, through giving, uh, through, through, through helping in an uncharacteristic way those around us, to love people, to desire to be with brothers and sisters, whether that's in a corporate gathering, whether that's in a small group, whether that's over uh, lunch, sharing struggles and successes in your walk. Are you desiring to be with the people of God in a deeper and deeper, more infectious, more, uh, more natural love for more people? those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, those who may not have even been introduced yet to this person, to this Redeemer, Jesus. As God continues to give us breath, he calls us to bear fruit. Matthew and Luke give us some pretty uh, strong reminders about our, 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 our purpose in bearing fruit. As we wrap up, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 7. Here in Matthew chapter 7, he's talking specifically about false teachers. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a disease, can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Luke repeats this in a little bit more general terms in Luke chapter 6. Uh, he, he says in, in, in verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What a convicting sentence. We are known by the fruit that we produce. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So church this morning, what language are you speaking? What fruit are you known for? When people see you, what comes to mind? Okay. Is the fruit you're producing Showing that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Or is it showing that you're, you've been consumed, you've been confused by the world? Luke 6, 44. For each tree is known by its fruit. So this morning, church, when people see you, do they know what type of tree that you are? Is that evident by the fruit that you are producing? My challenge to us all this morning, including myself, is that we, we don't look like this hybrid thing that a, that a three-year-old drew in, 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 at craft time that has bananas and grapes and nuts and all kinds of different things on it. 
because we can only bear one fruit. We can only serve one master. Um, And I pray that people know who our God is, who our king is, based on the fruit that we are producing. So what next? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you are relenting to that spirit, that you are bearing the fruit that you were designed, that you were made to create. If you are not a believer, I pray that today is the day of your salvation, that you realize that you need a better Savior, that you need the true Savior in your life, and that you surrender to him, saying, I've made a complete mess of my life. I've proved that I need you. And that you surrender to that king. When we go, when we go to, to the New Testament, we see this pattern that develops when, when, when the people in, in Acts chapter 2 ask Peter after they listen to a sermon, what should we do now? How do we save? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Uh, when when in Mark in six, Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized um, will be saved. Uh, in the New Testament pattern is you see a believer, you see a whole household of people believe, and then what do they start doing? They start looking for deep enough water in which to be baptized. If today is the day of your salvation, I encourage you not to look any further. Go public with that faith. Let your Christian family surround you and embolden you, protect you, and strengthen you as you begin new life in the Spirit of God and start producing the fruit that you were designed to produce.